This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Keg Shoe Keg Tracking. Learn more about what they do at www.kegshoe.ca. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day to day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Whatever I can find, I'll bring back, and I do it in dry hopping mode. And so I just try the wood in dry hopping. Basically, always on the lookout. That's been my life for in brewing. I'm always on the lookout on what I can learn today. I guarantee you'll learn something on the show this week. You'll hear all about how our guest uses wood in brewing, how Louis Pasteur ruined beer, and how maybe when the liquid in a barrel can't become a beer, it can get another purpose. Hey, I'm Peter Bukert. I'm a brewmaster and co-owner of Purpose Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado. How did your passion for wood aging begin? Was it just all around you when you entered the industry in Belgium in the 80s? Or was it a smaller curiosity that grew over time? Yeah, for me, it was when I started in Rodenbach. Uh, I became brewmaster there. Um, and that was kind of... Yeah, crazy brewery because I was responsible for buying raw materials until the product was packaged. But in between, we had our wood aging. We had coopers that were maintaining those barrels. And it was kind of a very strange process that I was confronted with right away when I really started in brewing. Okay. Talk about how your relationship with wood and the brewery has evolved over the years. How did you use it in the past and how do you use it now? Tough question, that one. Um, so, Rodenbach, of course, is a, a constant product. At that point, uh, we had blending towards the classical Rodenbach. And for the Alexander and the Rodenbach Grand Cru, uh, we 
picked one specific barrel just based on taste that has changed now um, but so there was no blending involved then when we started in new belgium initially it was very small batches but it came also from uh, wine barrels until we started buying footage but for la folie we always blended a beer for some of those smaller products there uh, we used single footers uh, and sometimes added fruit or something else uh, towards the end and now in purpose i kind of flip that completely around because our style in purpose is new so every weekend we send we serve new beers so therefore i use my barrels as no blend typically so every week we serve a different barrel so I think that's kind of the main difference eh, from um, a larger fooder brewery to a small uh, wine barrel or bourbon barrel brewery. How many different types of wood do you use today and which types do you use the most? Types of wood. So if you're talking about um, the... Wood varieties, oh, I use plenty of varieties. I have a little research project where I'm working mostly on South American woods and Central American woods. So there, um, it's really a wide variety and whatever I can find, I'll bring back and I do it uh, in dry hopping mode. And so I just try the wood in dry hopping. We work with two universities. One is doing GC on it. And so we get some uh, gas chromatograph results. The other one is doing tasting. Uh, panels so we get some reproducible data from it so I can't really talk about how many because I don't really know um, on the other side in Belgium and there they have access to more um, African woods and so there we typically do tastings of African woods and we do 20 to 30 woods at a time um, so <laughs> yeah it kind of is never ending because there's so much um, wood varieties and for me it also goes further whenever i talk there's other parts of the tree that can be used from spruce tips to leaves to sap to uh, there's other material um, that can be used from a tree so i don't think that was your question when you ask about type no that's good um so tell me a little bit more about what you said about sort of the 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 testing process and the, the little the, the dry hopping trials and whatnot. So obviously you want that process to be fairly quick. You can't do that and wait years and years and years for a result because then the wood you're trialing might not even still be available. So how do you do that process and how, how long does it take and how do you do that in a way that's practical? I mentioned it's a dry hopping process. Eh? So bring back chips. Uh, I s like to um, split the wood. I don't use dust because dust is, has heat impact. Um, so I split, I put it in a liter bottle, I overform the bottle, um, and then I taste it two weeks later with a group and we uh, make comments. Based on those comments, then we decide, oh, should we toast this wood or should we leave it as such? Oh, this is really a bad wood. Let's throw it out. Uh, there's not a really good flavors. Or there's maybe something we could try in a certain beer. Uh, I use a standard um, low alcohol, uh, not very bitter beer to do those tests so that we have an easy background. Huh? But so it's a very simple process. Um, we just get together after two weeks with a bunch of people and we taste. <laughs> 
Peter, what are the key variables when it comes to extracting flavor from wood? Yeah, that's a good question because I mostly focus on extracting wood flavors eh, in what I was talking about. And so it's like any extraction. Eh? You want to, if you do coffee extraction, you want to use some temperature to add to the coffee. You want to have a, a, a flow mode uh, you can create flow through or turbulence through um, different uh, measures um, the time i think time can be minimal if there's enough contact time um, pressure like in bourbon they cur currently are playing with artificial seasons where they heat up and cool down the rooms so that they press the uh, liquid into the wood and hopefully uh, get it back out. Uh, liquid to surface ratio, I already mentioned there uh, the chips versus dust. Dust has more uh, surface, but um, it's has more volatiles to the wood, so it's not really good um, to use dust as such in my eyes. Um, but uh, think about it as an extraction. The variables are just extraction variables. Are some of those variables more important to your process than others? Um, temperature I can't really use to a large extent in uh, beer because I typically try to do it cold so that I don't uh, get infections. Um, time, I don't think time is very important. Um, I see people working with Amburana barrels right now and that's kind of the worst you can do to a beer because Amburana has really good extraction very fast and you over Amburana beer if you use a barrel so Amburana is only for dry hopping in my mind and not toasted so am I answering your question here? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Keep going. <laughs> the the pressure, I don't use that much. Um, I only do it a little bit. Uh, and circulation, if you dry hop towards the end of fermentation, you have a little bit of circulation. I've forced circulated the fermenters also to do so, but uh, mostly I don't have that much circulation. So it's really the time and the surface, uh, the, the surface, the amount of surface you have. Uh, we did some Jequitiba barrels in Brazil and those need time. Uh, we tried with um, uh, peanut wood. Um, I forget now the name in, hmm. in Portuguese. Uh, um, also very hard one to extract balsamic. It, it depends on the type of wood. Um, do you need a barrel? Sometimes it can be really hard to get a barrel. In Brazil, they make those five liter barrels so you can play with that. But to me... Um, if it's dry hoppable, I just do a dry hopping. It's way easier to work in stainless with wood than it is in a barrel if you don't want to go sour. I'm looking at the beer list on your website right now. Mm -hmm. You've got a copper ale, a lager, a fruited IPA, barrel sour, and a hoppy lager. Would you take us through your process start to finish for one or two of those beers? Not every detail, but big picture. So maybe how and where the main fermentation happened, something about the yeast culture, you know, whether it was in a barrel or dry hopped and for how long, uh, just any key moments from that process, including if you're adding any cultures or fermentables and, and sort of, you know, the remaining steps before it ends up in someone's glass. Um, the biggest issue for us is that we need to get five new beers every weekend. And that is very tough. We luckily have a very small brew house. It's only a four barrel. So from a four barrel, we can fill a barrel and we can serve the rest right away. And so I serve a lot of clean beers. I'm a brewer. I like to make beer anyways, you know, uh, 
barrels or just a toy, uh, but in all the toys we have as brewers. So in the three of those beers that you have are basically pure um, fermented beers, stainless fermented beers. Uh, one has a, an addition. We work with a lot of additions. We do extractions, additions, and that can be fruits, spices, um, name it. Um, <laughs> I've worked with... Um, Bacon, <laughs> that was kind of a funny one to make a, a <laughs> Halloween beer, but uh, to not have the fat and have still good foam content, uh, dry hopping with bacon is kind of a technique you need to develop. Um, wow. But so we are looking at all kinds of ingredients. I, I travel a lot and I come back and I'm like, oh, wow, panatomaque that I found in Barcelona. I want to make something with tomatoes. And, and, and so I start working on it and um, it becomes something. And it often happens with late additions. Then the beer that goes into a barrel can be used as such. And so the smooth trekker is always um, the one that is served as such from a barrel. But often we use the barrel-aged beer also for um, doing blends with. Uh, I Barrel-aged between a week to four years. So an extreme flexibility there on what exactly. And the only... Thing we are looking at is taste if it tastes okay well then we serve it or we use it to blend how much time would you say you spend sourcing wood uh, and talk about what that process looks like <laughs> that's a funny one um, sourcing wood is kind of interesting for me because wherever I go um, if it's now a restaurant or um, a market or I'm tasting, I'm smelling, I'm, I'm buying. Um, and so I, I get all over the place on how I collect stuff. Uh, bringing it back is interesting often, but okay, I'll leave that in the middle. Um, the, then, so whenever I travel, I bring stuff back. Okay? And that can be my mother-in-law is actually excellent she's always like hey look what we have in the garden here um you should try this here taste it and i'm like huh what is this and so she's introducing me to new things and said wow i can find that in uh, colorado or i can find that in the u.s so i can source it um or i look where i can source it if it's interesting and um i basically always on the lookout that's been my life for in brewing. I'm always on the lookout on what I can learn today. Coming up. Give that microbiology a chance. Uh, mixed cultures can be very stable in time. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. 
With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is brought to you by BSG, home of Pathfinder yeast and nutrient for hard seltzer and FMB production. With an all-in-one yeast and nutrient package, Pathfinder TY Pure delivers a clean, neutral-based seltzer that's ready for flavoring. Already have a yeast strain to pitch? Pathfinder N-Pure Nutrient helps it adapt to the unique conditions of a sugar fermentation and avoid off flavors. Let Pathfinder help you find your way. Ask us how at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis has a webinar March 24th. Don't miss the best practices in lager production at Von Trapp Brewing webinar, March 24th. District Philly meets at the Iron Hill Tap House in Exton, March 25th. The Master Brewers webinar Building a Welcoming Workplace is March 29th. And another Master Brewers webinar, this one on the topic of funding opportunities for brewing research, April 14th. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. I bet you've become pretty skilled at evaluating, repairing, and taking care of barrels over the years. What tips do you have for the rest of us? Take one of my barrel repair classes. Um, (laughs) I do it very small. Um, I do maximum 10 people because I only have two sets of tools. And so uh, everybody is literally hammering on a barrel, taking the head out and putting them back. So... When I give a class, I focus on, oh, there's a leak. It's very brewer-focused. I had once a cooper coming over from Minnesota, and he's like, wow, you're teaching it like a brewer. I say, I'm a brewer. I'm not a <laughs> cooper. Eh? And so I'm teaching it like, um, if there's a leak, how are you going to fix it? There's two different types of leaks, and then there's a bunch of procedures that you can fix it with. I've had fun now on the last two trips in Ecuador and Colombia where you find a barrel and it's in a very bad shape and I'm like, want to empty it? Um, 
well, fix it here. And then we have to find tools while we're emptying the barrel. Uh, in Ecuador, we got it from a construction site on the other side of the street. I got a little hammer. It was a cute hammer. It was like only a kilogram hammer who's way too light for uh, cooperage work. But okay, we did it. And we made all the tools ourselves. So, But to me, that's the funnest part because if I use my regular tools, it's still fun to teach a cooperage class. But the funnest is to find a a pipe in Mexico, I'm like, hmm, this is going to work. I'll do it with that. <laughs> okay, any business owner wants to get the most for their money. Talk about the trade-offs of reusing barrels and how you navigate those decisions. Reusing barrels, um, to me, it starts with picking a barrel. Eh? If I find a barrel, it's going to be from a friend, some somebody that I know and that I trust. And people are sometimes texting me, hey, I have a barrel. I say, okay, I'll have a look. And if I like the barrel, I pick it up. And liking is... Um, Part of it is visual um, inspection, part of is smell. I always say in a Cooperage class, I use all senses. You listen to a barrel, you feel it. Um, you really have to assess a barrel. If I like it, I'll take it. Then I'm going to keep on reusing it. Um, if it's a bourbon barrel, I do a few extractions uh, of the previous liquid, and then I go sour with it. And so far, what we've done in purpose is um, those barrels get alive on their own. Some barrels, uh, one barrel is in Argentina right now, another one is in St. Louis. And so they move on. And from that, I also get barrels back. So I, since I'm an ever-changing beer brewery, every weekend change, I also like to introduce new barrels as a variable so that I kind of eliminate some house culture flavors so it, to me that's how it works um in Rodenbach, the oldest barrels when i worked there and they're still there so they're 180 years old in belgium we had some issues with uh, wood borers uh, here in colorado we don't have that issue um, because of the altitude but if you don't bring them in, um, if you bring a barrel from lower altitude, uh, inspect it for wood borers. If they're not present, then um, you can keep a barrel a very long time. And pH1, uh, kind of a famous barrel, uh, we started with it in, uh, I think, 98. And it was a barrel that started is in wine in 88 and it's still around it's becoming a weak barrel because it's a tin stave barrel but still it has an excellent microbiology and people keep on refilling it and uh, uh, bringing it to other breweries cool um i was gonna ask you you kind of already got into this i was gonna ask you you know i've heard you use this sort of barrels from friends expression before and um i guess um would you consider that uh is that sort of like a fun side project is that just like you know occasionally you do a beer like that or is that something that's really integral to your operation are you really using like lots and lots of barrels you know from from friends yeah like when we started purpose um the barrels came basically from two winemakers that i know one moved in from winery so i have barrels from both wineries um, and the rest comes from breweries and then one local distiller i've been using uh oh, sorry two um breweries was kind of funny because when i gave my resign in new belgium people um texted me like oh um 
congratulations, but what the heck are you doing? So, well, if you don't mind, could you send me some barrels? And so that's how I populated our barrel seller. Currently, um, barrels are still coming from left and right, and it happens one at a time, and one of the time goes out also to another brewery. Mostly, yeah, it's only been breweries so far. In the past, you've advised brewers to take advantage of the barrel cultures of wine or, or brewery barrels. Say more about that. If you bring in a barrel, uh, a barrel comes loaded. It comes loaded with flavor and comes loaded with microbiology. And maybe not in the case of distilled. But give that microbiology a chance. Uh, I'm a firm believer in... Kind of mixed cultures. Mixed cultures can be very stable in time. Uh, the sourdough is our best example, but we forgot so much. We as brewers have become so single-minded. We only use one yeast. Like never ever in the history of brewing has pe- have people been working with only a single yeast strain. Except due to a French guy, Louis Pasteur, who came out in, uh, what is it, 1876. He said, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. All that microbiology, you need to get rid of it. You need to work with one yeast. Can you imagine? He was French. (laughs) So I always rave about that. But think about the barrel as it's hopefully is going to have a great mixed culture. I tend never to inoculate so it's bad news for people who sell lactobacillus and bretanomyces I don't buy them I rely on good beer for my inoculum and so first a barrel if the barrel doesn't develop or if it stalls in flavor then I'm going to inoculate I get a lot of bottles from people visiting the brewery and they're like hey you want to taste this if it tastes good, um, I'll drink it. If it tastes great, and I mean at that point, if it, I think it has the right microbiology and it's not pasteurized, then I'm going to use the dredge of that bottle to help out a barrel that needs help. And so this is all I do. We already talked about temperature, but we didn't really talk about humidity. How, how do you use humidity in your process? Yeah, humidity is pretty important with barrels. Um, so ideal for a barrel is around 70% humidity. Um, here in Colorado, that's very difficult to achieve. So um, I'm, uh, our room is way drier. And so you see it right away. If I hydrate a barrel up, um, all the staves, ends, or um, very tied to each other. You come back the next day and I can put my fingernail in between every stave. Because those barrels are breeding at the end of the staves. And it happens so fast. But you have to fill it in. We have to keep our barrels hydrated here uh, in Colorado as fast as possible. Uh, You can do it a bit longer. I never let them dry for a week because otherwise they start leaking. So the 70% humidity, if it's um, above 70% humidity, the, the barrel will try to get in equilibrium with the room and it will actually breed out alcohol. And so that's when you see the angel share in Rodenbach in a moist environment in Belgium. We had a lot of black mold on the walls and that's just the angel share, the evaporation of the alcohol. In Colorado, we actually see a gain in alcohol because we evaporate water because those barrels are trying to moisturize the room basically. 
you know, this, this can't always go uh, as planned. Uh, certainly you have uh, beer that you have to dump. Talk a little bit about how much, how much beer you have to dump and, um, you know, sort of how you absorb that cost and, and, and you know, deal with that. <laughs> Interesting question. I don't really know how much I dump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and to me, the, you're not in control anymore. A brewer is barely in control of regular fermentation. Once you go to barrels, there's only fist or uh, sorry, um, fingerspitzengefühl is the German term. Uh, it's the feeling in the tops of your fingers, basically. You, I've been working now quite a while with barrels, and so for me, I taste the barrel I'm like, oh no, this is not going right. Or maybe I'm gonna give it some time, but if it doesn't change, I'll dump it. And so um, it's just based on taste that you kind of evaluate what has to be done with this barrel. Um, if it needs to be inoculated, if it has to be used right away, if it can be blended still or not. Um, and there's like ethyl acetate. If you get a bit of ethyl acetate in a barrel, um, you can always work with fruit because the fruitiness of ethyl acetate will um, enhance the fruit the fruit aroma the nail polish remover kind of disappears in the blend of the fruit so you kind of need to know what to do if something is wrong with the barrel since it is finger spits and gefühl it's kind of um, the old fart you know you don't know anymore what you do because you just do it and so i don't dump too much but i do dump my best dump i did was um I was dumping a barrel with peach, uh, peach that had been in there for four years, and there was such a mush, and the mush I couldn't really serve because it was going to st get stuck in the tap lines. So <laughs> I just gave it to a local sorbet uh, maker here. I said, here, just make a sorbet from this liquid. And it became excellent because it still had a little bit of chunks of peach. It had the sourness. Wow. It had the fruitiness of the beer itself. So maybe if it cannot become a beer, it can get another purpose. Huh? I like it. I like it. Um, okay, you already said that at your brewery now, you're not producing any flagship brands and everything's sort of changing all the time, which I get. But you obviously have past experience in breweries working with wood that were trying to produce beers um, consistently over time. Uh, talk about your strategy in that scenario when you are trying to achieve consistency in a process where that seems almost impossible. I wouldn't call it consistency. I would call, call it more, it's like it. And because you're always, uh, Rodenbach was the easiest. I have roughly 300 footers there. And so we were always tasting every day. And based on that, we were trying to work to blend or keep, keep the ones that could stand on their own uh, separate so that we could make um, Rodenbach Grand Cru or Alexander. But blending is really key for making a consistent brand. I, if you look at La Folie, then what we created in New Belgium, we typically gave it a year and a date. Uh, so if we did multiple a year, just because people then can talk about it. They, oh, I like the 92 better. Sorry, 92 doesn't exist. Um, the 98 better than the 2002. Well, that's a fun part of it. And they are similar, but they're not the same. Okay. Um, earlier, you started to mention um, brewing with other materials. Um, I, I know you've used 
you know, from oak leaves to sap and probably a bunch of other stuff that most brewers have never considered. Um, do you want to talk more about the other ways you've used wood in the brewery? But the oak leaf one was an interesting one because we got the leaves shortly before, uh, sorry, a day before a windstorm here in Colorado. And we sampled oak leaves from all the types of oaks we could find here in Colorado, who's actually not... Uh, the biodiversity is not that great here in Colorado. But then we smelled the bags of the different leaves and decided on using two uh, of those um, uh, leaves. And the reason why we did it end of uh, season, because the, how do I call it? The, the flavor components really get concentrated towards the end. Spring leaves don't really taste that very well. That's why if you use dandelions, you're going to use, uh, if you use the leaves of dandelions, you're going to use fall dandelions because they have way more concentrated flavors. So uh, every part of a tree, every part of an ingredient you're going to use, you have to think through the ingredient on how will it be best for an extraction process in my brewery. That was Peter Buchart here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you want to learn more from Peter, grab a copy of Wood and Beer from the Master Brewers Bookstore. You'll find a link in the show notes. And if you're a fan of this show, the next time you want to buy a brewing book, make a point to buy that book from the Master Brewers Bookstore. It's part of what keeps the lights on around here. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.